Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that was just read. We pray that your spirit will bless this time as your word is taught and preached. We recognize that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but it, that it accomplishes that which you purpose. And we ask that you would do that this day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I stepped off the plane for my very first short-term mission trip, I met our field host. I also met his family, his eldest son, his younger son, and also his youngest daughter. After gathering all our baggage, we all hopped into the small van and we sped off to our lodgings. Uh, the younger, youngest daughter uh, enjoyed sitting on the laps of my teammates for this car ride. She being quite the extrovert, kept moving from one teammate to the next. When the ride became bumpier, my field host warned his daughter that she was allowed to move one more time for her safety. Otherwise, she would spend time by herself. I thought to myself, the warning was clear and stern. My field host meant business. But this four to five-year-old girl thought that her sweet smile would allow her to get away with rebelling against dad. She moved not once, but twice. When she moved the second time, my field host sprang into action and sat his daughter on his lap. He questioned her, what did daddy say? I said, you can only move one more time. Now you will spend some time by yourself. He took her head and gently turned it away to a window away from everyone. Like any child that doesn't get what she wants, she began to wail, cry, and holler. But my field host ignored her cries and returned to conversing with my teammates. After a few minutes, he turned to his daughter and asked, Are you ready to return to the conversation? Yes, Daddy. He awaited the response. Yes, Daddy. But her face screamed defiance. I will not submit. And despite my field host's warning, his daughter continued to defy his instructions. This was a case of rebellion. How often have we found ourselves in the position of our, my field host? It may not have been a parent warning a child. Think about a time when you warned a brother or a sister in Christ that their rebellion against God would result in God's discipline. It could be a brother getting a little bit too close to a female colleague at work. Maybe you warn a sister that their continuing absence from church service will lead to feelings of distance from God. Maybe you warn a brother that their inability to let a grudge go will result in bitterness. When we think of rebellion, we think about outrageous sins, embezzlement, fraud, bribery, murder, rape, but as Christ followers, we realize that rebellion occurs any time we prioritize anyone or anything over God. It happens when we put our agenda first and God's agenda second. Yet what do we do when a brother or sister refuses to turn from their path of rebellion? What do we do when we warn them and they continue to defy God? How should we respond? What do we do when a brother or sister refuses to to turn from the rebellion. To answer this question, we'll look at a case of rebellion found in the writings of Micah the prophet. Uh, please turn there with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Micah had the unenviable task of warning Judah 
that their continued rebellion would result in God's judgment. And despite Micah's pleas, Judah ignored him and God. So again, please turn with me to Micah chapter 6 if you're not there already. Now, in this morning's section of text, we're going to answer three questions. When does rebellion against God occur? Second, what is the cost of rebellion? And third, what do we do when believers insist on rebelling despite our warnings? First, when does rebellion against God occur? Rebellion occurs when believers confuse complete faithfulness with partial faithfulness. Disobedience occurs when we think that God's truth applies to certain parts of my life rather than all of my life. If I follow God with my mind, then that's enough. Who cares about following God with heart, soul, strength? That's when rebellion begins. It begins when we think that we just need to obey God in a few things instead of all things. Spiritual rebellion occurs. Rebellion against God occurs when believers confuse complete faithfulness with partial faithfulness. So Micah invokes the image of a courtroom to teach Judah that partial faithfulness to God is rebellion. So imagine the scene. Judah sits on the left-hand side as the defendant. Micah sits on the right-hand side as the prosecutor. And in the jury box sits the mountains and the hills. Mount Carmel, Mount Hebron are all present. The Lord then steps foot into the courtroom and takes his seat on the judge's bench. Then he makes the pronouncement that's found in Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Then Micah pushes off from his hands and stands and then he makes his case in verse two. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Now, why on earth did God choose a jury of inanimate objects, mountains, hills, and the foundations of the earth? Well, other than God and the heavenly hosts, these mountains existed for millennia. Mount Sinai bore witness to Moses receiving the law. Mount Moriah bore witness to Abraham receiving a ram as a substitutionary sacrifice for his son, Isaac. Mount Carmel bore witness to Elijah contesting and combating the prophets of Baal. The mountains have eyes to witness the works of God and the response of Israel. Micah, as the representative for God, reminds the court of the Lord's faithfulness to Israel. He begins his argument with a history of what the Lord had done for Israel. He first delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt through its appointed leaders, Moses, the administrator, Aaron, the mediator, and Miriam, the prophetess. A verse three says this, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Micah continues his argument. Not only did God save Israel with godly leadership, but he also saved Israel through divine intervention. Remember the time that after they delivered, they were gone from Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness and encountered the Moabite king Balak. Now, Balak came out with this idea of cursing Israel through the diviner, Balaam. Yet every time Balaam attempted to curse Israel, only blessings came out of his mouth. Balaam attempted to curse Israel not once or twice or three times, but four times. And each time he uttered a blessing. Verse five says this. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And then Micah recalls two locations, Shittim and Gilgal. Verse 5 continues with this. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Now, when Micah mentions these two locations, Shittim and Gilgal, they have a very fine place in Israelite history that they are places of significance. For Texans, they remember the same, remember the Alamo. And for those who are Star Wars fans, they would remember the phrase, remember Alderaan. Yet these locations have a significance and these Israelite parents or rabbis would teach these little Jewish boys and Jewish girls that after Moses died, Joshua assumed leadership over the nation of Israel and before Israel crossed over into the Jordan, they stopped in a place called Shittim. And there, Joshua sends out the spies to Jericho. And then after the spies return, Joshua leads Israel to cross the river Jordan into an area called Gilgal. And at Gilgal, three things happen. Joshua sets up the stones to remember the crossing of the Jordan. He circumcises all the men. Israel celebrates the first Passover in the promised land. Israel had arrived to where God had promised to bring them. God had fulfilled his promise. Remember Shittim. Remember Gilgal. And despite God's faithfulness to Israel, Judah continued to disobey the Lord. You hear it in Micah's opening questions. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Micah then finishes his argument and takes his seat. Then Judah rises to respond. And essentially Judah says, what do you want from me? If you want me to bring a bigger sacrifice to offer at the temple, then I bring it. Look with me at verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? A worshiper offered a burnt sacrifice, such as a bull or a lamb or a ram, by burning it all whole. Judah says that it wouldn't just bring any calf, but it would bring a one-year-old calf whom had fed for a year and had been cared for and not helped to plow any field. And they would give, they, Judah, would give this tender flesh 
all of it to God. Judah would not eat any of it. And Judah was saying, take it all. And then Judah continues in verse seven. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Jesus is asking, do you want an infinite number of rams or infinite amount of oil? It's not just a pint or gallon. We'll offer you rivers of oil. And then Judah concludes with this last question. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, Judah now asks this most ridiculous question. Would the sacrifice of our firstborn children pay for our sins? And if Judah actually knew the Torah, then it would have known that God forbids any type of child sacrifice. He considered the idea of sacrificing children to Molech to be abhorrent. But Judah asks anyways, and Judah finishes its inquiry and takes its seat. Micah rises again for the last time with this closing statement in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. A lot can be said about this verse, but the main thrust is this, that God wants not just your outward worship exhibited by sacrifices. He wants your inward worship of heart, mind, soul, and strength. He doesn't want you just to worship him at the altar, but he wants you to worship him in home, at the fields, or in the market. When you hear a poor person's case in court, do justice. Listen to their case and render justice impartially. When you see someone in need, help them. Provide for them a coat to keep warm, food to fill their belly, or even a listening ear to hear their pain. Is this because the law says so? Yes, but it's more than that. Because you have experienced the committed love of God you commit to love others as well. You love kindness. Now, the word kindness in verse 8 has a footnote. If you look at the bottom page of your paper Bible, you'll see that the footnote says the phrase steadfast love. Now, I checked my version Bible app. It doesn't really have the footnote, but I'm sure that other Bible apps may have that footnote as well. Now, this idea of steadfast love is an idea of committed love that's demonstrated by God that God promised to Israel that he would offer his steadfast love to this nation. Now, when you go to the temple to offer your sacrifice, you would know as Samuel taught the King Saul, that God just doesn't want your burnt offerings. God delights in obedience. Just as the whole burnt offering is given to God, so is your life given to him. This is what Micah means by walking humbly before the Lord. You're completely faithful to God. Now, Judah believed that their partial faithfulness through sacrifice at the temple would save them. As long as they offered their sacrifice on the Sabbath, then they could do whatever they wanted. And Micah corrects this misunderstanding by teaching them that God wants them to be completely faithful. This means following God by not only offering the right sacrifices, but also by living rightly. Many people see the Christian faith as insurance for eternity. 
Once you make a profession of faith, you can do whatever you want. After all, God will forgive you because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But that demonstrates a misunderstanding of grace. If God could be so faithful as to offer his son to redeem you, then how could we not offer all of ourselves to his service? There's another group of people who would see God as someone that they must appease. You fear that if you don't do the Christian thing, then God will be displeased with you. If I read my Bible, attend church, or pray multiple times a day, then God will be more pleased with me. But God says to you that faithfulness is not just in what you do, but it's also resting in the fact that I'm faithful to you through Jesus Christ. Now, both types of people demonstrate a partial faithfulness because they don't trust God. The one who sees the gospel as insurance, they don't trust in God's design for their lives is best. They don't believe that what God says is best for you to do is actually the best thing to do. And then you have the other group. And for those who work hard to appease God, they don't trust that God is pleased with them through what Christ has done. An unwillingness to trust and obey God is rebellion. And if we're all really honest, we recognize that this doesn't just describe other people. If we look deep down into our hearts, we'll discover I'm a rebel too. I have rebelled against God. And this should humble us, especially when we confront another believer's rebellion against God. So let's move on to the second question. What is the cost of rebellion? The cost of rebellion is punishment. When God's people rebels, he punishes them. Discipline awaits those who God uh, prefers or who prefer to live against God's rule. That they would rather live according to their flesh rather than according to the direction of God. And discipline awaits them. And the cost of rebellion is punishment. Michael warns Judah that God would punish them for their unjust business practices. Hear how Micah uses the image of the rod to illustrate the idea of discipline. Uh, the author of Proverbs uses the rod to illustrate the discipline that a parent administers to a child. And whenever I think of discipline, I think of my mother's bamboo feather duster. I can still remember the sound of it cutting through the air and the thwack that it makes when it hits my hand. Now, whoever holds the rod or the feather duster has the authority that demands respect. Now, the Bible would use the word fear. If the Lord holds the rod, then Judah ought to have a fear of the Lord that leads to obedience and to worship. Micah writes this in verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the Lord and of him who appointed it. Now, what unjust practices would lead to such punishment? Well, Judah's merchants had been cheating their customers through fraud. If one ephah of flour, which is about nine pounds, cost half a shekel, the merchants would have charged 10 shekels. It reminds me of a New York Times article of a story of a man in Tennessee who at the beginning of the pandemic bought up all the hand sanitizer in his city. And then he would charge 8 to $70 for one bottle of hand sanitizer that would normally go for a dollar. 
Now, Micah writes this in verse 10. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I quit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. What is the punishment that awaits these profiteers, these swindlers? Well, God will bring about the curses they had promised that would happen if Israel broke the covenant. An invading army of Assyrians would lay waste to the cities of Judah. As they marched across the Judean countryside, they would raise fields, plunder, and take. When the Judeans retreated to their capital city of Jerusalem, they would have no access to their vineyards or to their fields. The Assyrian army stood between them and sustenance. Micah writes this in verse 13. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve, I will give to the sword. Now, Remember the wheat that you sowed, Judah? You'll never eat its grains. Remember the bountiful harvest that you received last year, the sweet and juicy figs that you made into jam? Think about those plump grapes that you dried and made into raisins. Recall the olives that you pressed into oil and stored in vats. After all those hours of sowing, picking, harvesting, pressing, treading, stomping, and drying, all of it wasted. Because the Assyrians would take all of it and none of it would remain. Now, verse 15 continues this idea. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. Now, why has this punishment come? Well, Judah, instead of following the Lord wholeheartedly, had adopted the practices of the northern kingdom of Israel. Two kings in the northern kingdom had introduced alternatives to God in Israel. They were a father and son duo. Omri established himself as king because of his might. His son Ahab introduced Baal worship through his marriage to a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. This led Israel into further moral decay. And instead of learning Israel's lessons, Judah adopted the same practices. Micah concluded his condemnation of Judah with these words in verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Now, you may think of unjust business practices as a thing of the past. Uh, but even the early church struggled with deceit. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a plot of their land, but held back a portion of their proceeds. And while they presented a portion to the church saying, this is all we earn for the sale of this land. They lied. They deceived. And this lie cost them their lives. Now, why does God detest dishonesty and business practices? Well, dishonest business practices fail to honor the work of other people. When you fail to pay someone a fair wage at work, 
were essentially saying, you mean nothing to me. You're just a resource for me to use as I please and discard when I'm finished. In some ways, it's stealing. It's taking from them. I think about media piracy. When we fail to pay for a film or a song, when we think to ourselves, well, these artists and these actors get paid millions. But do we think about those working the sound booth or those who are putting together the special effects and doing it for hours so that we might be able to enjoy them? And when you're committing media piracy, you're not just stealing from big companies, but you also steal from those who need that income to care for their families. It happens not just in business. Think about academic research. When you take credit for someone's work by plagiarizing, you're stealing someone's ideas. You're essentially saying, I don't care how many hours of lab tests you ran or academic journals you read. You're just a resource to be used for my benefit. And this ultimately betrays a selfishness that looks out for myself because if I don't, no one else will. But there's a phrase, what goes around comes around, that if you fail to care for others, then God will withdraw his care from you. If you steal, then what you store up will be taken away. It may not be now, but everything will one day pass by a fire of judgment. And why do believers experience judgment or punishment when they disobey God? Well, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It teaches us that if we stray from God's protection by living according to our flesh, then we find ourselves in danger so that we might repent and turn back to God. And when we see people in rebellion, then we need to warn others of the punishment that awaits them if they persist. If they struggle with sexual purity, then we need to warn them that it's going to affect their dating relationships, their marriage, their view of men, their view of women. If they struggle with forgiving a brother or sister in Christ, the bitterness will eat them up inside. If they struggle with attending church, then their hearts will grow cold to the gospel. Warn others that if they persist in rebellion, punishment will come. So let's move on to the third question. So what do we do when people insist on rebellion despite our warnings? Well, trust God despite their insistence to rebel. Believe that God is doing something that may be beyond our ability to see. Have faith in God through a, that a, though a brother or sister may ignore a warning, trust God that he's doing a work. Trust him despite their insistence to rebel. Now, Micah persists in trusting God despite Judah's continued disobedience, their continued rebellion. If Micah were to compare Judah's rebellion to something, then he would compare it to the late summer season. All the figs in the orchard would have been picked. Every cluster of grapes had been plucked from their vine. There may have been a few figs left on the tree and maybe a few clusters of grapes left on the vines. And these were for the poor to glean. But none of those remained. Everything was plucked or picked clean. And Micah writes this in verse 1 of chapter 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned 
there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Just as there were no more fruits on the vine, no righteous deed existed in Judah. It's like trying to find nitrile gloves or Clorox wipes at Costco. Nothing can be found. No righteous person lives in the land. Of course, Micah spoke metaphorically because, of course, there was a remnant that remained faithful to the Lord, such as prophets like Isaiah, but the majority had rebelled against God. And Micah describes the situation in verse 2. The godly had perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. That instead of using their nets to capture birds or fish, they use these tools to hunt other Israelites. And Micah goes on to describe not only the people, but the corrupt judicial system at work. From the king, which Micah calls the great one, to the official, who he calls the prince, to the judge. That they conspired to create a system of bribery and corruption that prevents justice from being done. Micah writes this in verse 3. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. He compares these wicked individuals, this corrupt system, to prickly shrubs that harms those who touch him, them, and a hedge that obstructs justice. Micah writes this in verse 4. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. That these individuals who have corrupted the system have made it difficult and impossible for justice ever to be done. Yet in light of all this corruption... Micah compares himself to the watchman, to the sentinel on the wall of Jerusalem, while others may see the Assyrian army approaching with their chariots and their horses and their siege works. Micah sees God's hand of punishment. And Micah captures this image in the latter half of verse 4. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. And like a wooden structure that has been eaten by termites. So has societal structures disintegrated, so much so that no one can trust one another, not even your parents or your neighbors or your spouse. And Micah describes this disintegration of society in verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The man's enemies are the men of his own house. And although there is rampant rebellion in Judah and no one can be trusted, Micah turns to the one who is trustworthy. He writes this in verse seven, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, why does Micah still consider God the savior of Judah? Why does he still pray? Well, Micah knows that God will use Israel to bless the nations. He promised it to Abraham long ago. He also promised to Moses that he would restore Israel after a time of exile. And Micah awaits God to fulfill his plans because no one can ever thwart or foil 
what God has designed. Now, for us, we recognize that God had fulfilled this promise to Israel. He returned them to the land after 70 years of exile in Babylon. And then 400 years later, he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins, to rise and to ascend into heaven. And then he sent the Spirit of God to dwell in those who believe. He fulfilled the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And when we see a brother or sister in Christ persist in sin, we need to trust God by praying for them. John reminds us that the first response of a believer when they see one in sin is to pray for them. Pray that God would open their eyes to see their folly. Pray that God will help them to see their need to repent and to confess. Pray that God would show them that the rebellion will never satisfy the longing of their soul. So trust God, even though people continue to rebel despite your warnings. So when does rebellion against God occur? Rebellion against God occurs when believers confuse complete faithfulness with partial faithfulness. And what is the cost of rebellion? The cost of rebellion is punishment. And what do we do when others, believers, insist on rebelling despite our warnings and our pleas? Trust God despite their insistence to rebel. Now, remember the story of my field host's daughter, that after his daughter refused to acknowledge his authority with a yes, daddy, my field host calmly responded, you'll have to spend more time by yourself then. He proceeded to turn her head once again toward the window away from everyone, and my field host returned to chatting with my teammates. After a few more minutes, he asked his daughter again, are you ready to return? Yes, daddy. And she recognizing further rebellion would not free her from her solitary social confinement. She said the two words, acknowledging her dad's authority. Yes, daddy. And since the road had smoothed out, my field host allowed her to sit on a lap of a teammate with the stern instruction, do not move. She giggled and laughed the rest of our car trip with the case of rebellion behind her. And for us as believers, we know that our rebellion has been covered by Christ. That when we said, yes, Jesus, we have been forgiven and we have been restored. And we hope the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone astray and yet have yet to return. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word we thank you for its reminder that we need to be wholly and fully given over to you to be faithful in all aspects of our lives and to recognize that any form of rebellion will result in discipline. Help us, Father, when we see a brother or sister in sin and rebelling against you, that you would help us to continue to trust you by praying for their repentance, that they would turn back to you and return to fellowship with you. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to do all these things, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.